This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at the BatmanUniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Hi, my name is Peter Tomasi. Hi, this is James Hyman IV. Hi, I'm Dan Jurgens. Hey, I'm Duff Lloyd. This is Jim Lee. Hey, this is Scott Snyder. This is Mark Hamill speaking. This is Kevin Conroy. This is Tim Sale. Hello, everyone. I'm Batman, and you're listening to my podcast. Hello, and welcome to TBU Comics Podcast, Season 12, Episode 8, Legacy Number 295. My name is Ian, and with me I have... And Daniel. And as you can hear, we have a new co-host for our guest today. Um, Daniel is a longtime listener and commenter, and we've appreciated all the things he's said on Twitter, and he's recently joined our Discord. And so we want to introduce him to you, the listener. So, Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, everyone, I'm uh, uh, Daniel. Um, I've been into sort of Batman my whole life, but I probably actually didn't start reading the comics until about five to seven years ago. So I've had a lot of background to make up, and I think my sort of legacy knowledge probably still isn't where I'd like it to be, but um, there's time. So uh, if Theo, who was on here earlier, was joking about his age, then I'm really the grandpa of the whole group, right? So um, <laughs> in my day job, I'm a university professor. Um, and so I work on public health, ethics, and law, and I'm actually trained as a historian as well. So those are the, the things that I do um, in my sort of uh, non-Batman life, I guess. Uh, that's very excellent, and I know if we've chatted a bit about how you were um, doing some rereading of Batman Contagion and how your real life and uh, the current events are sort of overlapping in a weird way, so it's kind of a somewhat fun, somewhat disturbing bit of trivia about the whole situation that we're all finding ourselves in. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's it's funny too because sometimes I don't. It's one of the few times I don't want to pick up a Batman comic, right? I mean, I'm sort of I'm done with the day, and I sort of want to slip into comics to escape a little bit, and then I'm reading about a lethal killer virus out in Gotham, and it's kind of like you know, hmm, maybe maybe I should read something else for a little while. Definitely. So, how did you become a Batman Universe fan, both um, the comics and our le- uh, website? Um, well, like I said, I'm sort of really been into the character of Batman for most of my life since I'm older. Um, you know, I was a sort of adolescent during Batman, the animated series, and that had sort of a big impact on me. I started really reading the comics seriously, probably about five or six years ago, partly on the advice of a friend. And then he also suggested that I should, um, start reading the Batman universe and listening to the podcast. And that it would really sort of deepen my, my understanding of the narrative and the arcs and the characters. And so, um, it was really on his advice, um, that I started to both read the comics seriously and then sort of get 
get into the site and the podcast. And I've just gotten more and more interested. Um, the comics I was interested in as soon as I really started collecting them and reading them, but the, the, the Batman universe podcast and website, I've sort of gotten more into over the last three, three to four years. Well, that is a true friend in our opinion on the Batman universe. Um, that's also a great segue. So how do you collect and read your comics? Uh, digitally, hard copy, mail order? So my comics are 100% digital. And I know there's probably people throwing things at the, who will be throwing things at their screens and, and booing this man, et cetera, et cetera, right now. Um, but I think part of it was a calculation. There's no doubt. If someone would say to me, look, paper is better, I'd be like, yes, of course. Of course it is. I agree with you 100%. But um, I just thought that for me being able to sort of have my entire comic collection with me, you know, if I travel or something like that, wherever I went was just too good and too convenient to pass up. And so I just made the decision that I would mostly do sort of digital collections. I mostly read them on tablets and things like that. Well, that's a that's a great question. You're the first all digital uh, collector we've had. I personally bought a Kindle Fire 10 inch screen um, just to read comics on what what tablet do you usually use for people who might be interested in digitally collecting yeah same thing i've got a kindle fire 10 inch screen and then i um i also have um sometimes i sort of um appropriate my kids tablet which is about a, a nine i think it's a, i think it's a nine and a half inch asus um the kid doesn't use it that much so i've sort of turned it into a second comic reader to be honest with you um so partly because I read some Marvel stuff too, and Kindle doesn't handle Marvel very well. So I kind of had to branch out a little bit. So, um, but yeah, I mostly read it on a fire. And then sometimes I pick up trades and things like that if I really want to have them. So I have the paper, the paper of uh, Arkham Asylum, and of course, the Killing Joke and things like that. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, as uh, I just said, I, I do collect digitally, but it's mostly in the, the trade form or Recently, DC Universe, which is a great thing. They just added the Kindle Fire app for DC Universe. So reading uh, the issues on that service is a really uh, pleasant experience in general. Um, and our last question to get to know you is, uh, even though comics are sort of on hold right now because of the lack of a distributor and a lack of uh, printing apparatus, what are you excited about in the coming year of Batman comics whenever they start up again. Um, I'm really excited to see where Tynan takes Batman. You know, I think Ian, you know, I've talked about this sort of off uh, back channel a little bit about this, but you know, as much as I love Tom King's run in Batman, I found maybe because he was squashed in his issues, it, it's not entirely um, obviously his responsibility, but I found just the narratives really difficult to follow um, by the end. I, I couldn't even understand what was going on with, you know, Flashpoint and different Batmans and playing so much with time and space. I, I couldn't even really understand what was happening. And so I always found in detective comics that Tynan's narratives are, I, I don't know if you want to call them simpler, but at least I was always able to follow them, you know, and so far in Batman, that's been the case as well. So I'm kind of excited to see what, what Tynan does with it. I mean, I like his character development. I like his, what he's done, particularly in the complexity of the villains. Ian, I know you don't like Joker, but I love Joker. So I'm really excited to see what he does with Joker in the series. Cause I know that's coming up and things like that. Um, so, so really just Tynan's arc and, and where he's going to take it and, and what he's going to do with it. And quick question about uh, Punchline. Do you have any feelings either way about her? Um, no, I, I mean, I don't, uh, I think um, the last, the last guest host said he didn't much read, uh, wasn't really into solicitations and I'm kind of the same way. I just like sort of pick it up and go. Right. So, so I know that, that there've been some sort of allusions to it. Um, I, I'm a little confused by it, I guess, but, but I'll reserve judgments um, and, and just sort of wait. I'm willing to wait and sort of see what happens. 
a wise attitude. So that is Daniel, our guest co-host for this week, and we're very grateful for him for coming on. Today, we're going to be exploring one of the recent releases for DC's Black Label line, and that is the comic Harleen, written and illustrated by writer-artist Stjepan Sijic, and uh, I believe he's Croatian, and I don't actually know how to pronounce his first name. I have listened to a podcast where he's pronounced it, but it didn't stick in my head, so I'm just going to say Sijic. Um, from now on to refer to him as writer and artist. Um, he's known for doing his creator-owned comic uh, Bloodstone, Sunstone. I want to say Sunstone. Um, and that is, um, for our children's listeners, this is not for children. It is something that you should ask your parents if you want to read. It's about uh, two people who fall in love through very adult activities. Um, but he's got a lot of experience in both writing and illustrating. He did a really good run on Aquaman as illustrator for Dan Abnett a couple years ago. And he does a lot of cover work and it just has a great sense of light and paint and color, even though I think he works all digitally. Um, that's my understanding. So Harleen is his black label a reimagining of Harley Quinzel, uh, Harleen Quinzel's origin story as Harley Quinn, and it's the first in a proposed series by him exploring Harley's life. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about where the series could go as we go on. But even though this is, I would argue, a satisfying story by itself, it does clearly have set up for future stories. So without further ado, let's get started with Harleen, issue number one. It took me nearly three months to set up a session. I studied all his tricks and gimmicks and felt I was ready for anything. You know, my father used to beat me up pretty badly. Anything except that. By Stjepan Sijic on both writing and art. Issue 1. Dr. Harleen Quinzel is in Gotham with her friend Chandra Kinsolving hustling for research dollars as she delivers a presentation to the money people, as Sandra calls them, on the reasons for the absence of empathy amongst Gotham's criminals and the ways in which she proposes to examine and potentially treat it. However, while walking around Gotham, she has an encounter with the Joker, who spares her life after holding her at gunpoint. This plays into Harleen's dreams and nightmares, which circle around versions of the fight Batman and Joker have amongst the fog of Batman's smoke bombs. Harleen watches as Joker and Batman battle it out in an extended fight scene, and she feels there is something unhinged about Gotham as people cheer as Batman bashes Joker into submission. Despite Harley thinking her presentation to potential investors has gone very badly, she suddenly is summoned to her boss's office where Lucius Fox of Wayne Industries Research Division says he is willing to supply her with a Wayne Industries grant to continue her studies at Arkham Asylum. This comes as a nice surprise and a triumph for Harleen, who is unpopular with staff who have been spreading rumors about her after she dated and had an affair with an older professor in college. Harleen then goes to Arkham, where she meets Hugo Strange, still in charge of the asylum. He is suspicious of her work, but allows it, thinking it will make no difference. Curiously, he is very emphatic that this is a place of healing, and the inmates are not prisoners, they are patients. Arlene then works her way through the Arkham patients, including Riddler, Poison Ivy, and Killer Croc, all the while somewhat haunted and tormented by dreams of the Joker, whose name she has put at the bottom of her list. 
This all changes when Harvey Dent, Gotham's district attorney, instructs Harleen in a very arrogant way to drop her Wayne Grant and her research as he views it to be dangerous to the legal process and the conviction of criminals who will start to get their lawyers to plead diminished responsibility due to their lack of empathy. Harley rejects his reasoning and arranges a meeting with the Joker, who from the very beginning of their relationship seems to have the upper hand on his therapist. So... Uh, issue one starts off with a bang, with nightmares and then a brutal fight scene between Batman and the Joker that highlights both Batman's power and his uh, technology. There's some really good envisioning of his, his gadgets that he uses to fight the Joker and his gang. Um, some questions I have for our group. What are some of the supporting characters that stick out to you? Well, just now as you were reading it, I didn't pick up on her last name before, and I was like, Kinsolvi. Golly, that's familiar. And so while you're doing your summary, I kind of looked that up. And that was uh, one of the, or uh, Jack Drake's doctor in Nightfall, I think, or maybe Bruce, I don't remember. That's correct. Actually, um, the name is just written as Chandra in the book. I'm oh, okay. assuming that it's Kinsolving because Sandra Kinsolving uh, was a huge Batman character during Nightfall. She's actually mm -hmm. a, a metahuman or, or mutant who has a healing ability, and that's actually how Bruce Wayne's spine was healed after Bane broke it. Um, she was a love interest of Bruce's, and she is African-American. Um, so I think that the, the hints that are dropped that Chandra believes in mystical abilities and, mm. and such are why mm -hmm. I assigned her as Kendra, uh, Sandra Kinsolving in my summary. I could be wrong, but it seems really clear if you know her background. Mm -hmm. So that stuck out really prominently. Um, I, I don't think there's too many characters other than Batman, Joker, and Harley that are really, I guess, prominent in here. I guess there's the 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 head of security at Arkham who ends up playing a piggy, pretty big role through the whole story. But everyone's very well written. Like even the characters you think you've read a thousand times and you're so bored of it. Like Harley just in and of herself is very interesting. Even though she's got a lot of dialogue all the time because you're always constantly uh, reading her inner monologue. Um it's always interesting and just the the voice of the narrator it's like the voice of the internet, she doesn't exist really because it's it's telling the past tense of of her life. But now she's crazy because we all know this. We know we know how the story ends, right? Um, so she no longer is in touch with reality. Whereas this narrator is like, "Yep, this is you know this is where I lost touch with reality. This is where things started to go downhill." And that analytical look, I don't think exists anymore. I don't think that part of Harley is cognizant anymore. And so whoever it is that's telling the story doesn't exist. And I thought that was a very interesting character to be in this book as someone who doesn't exist. Yeah, I think um, just picking up where sort of Steph left off, I think, you know, there aren't a lot of supporting characters. I completely agree with that. And I think part of the point is because as, 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 Har as Harley says, uh, later on, you know, she's really a person who's dealing with intense social and emotional isolation mm -hmm. for a variety mm -hmm. of different reasons, right? And so, you know, the, the whole point of that, if there were sort of 
if there was a rich cast of supporting characters who had sort of a meaningful influence on her life, it's not clear that the events would have unfolded in the way that they did. I mean, I think Harley is a character who is when, when she's still Harleen Quinn, Dr. Quinzel, right? She, she is, she's, she's so isolated. So I think that that's actually part of it. And that's partly why the main characters really are, you know, sort of Harker, Harley Joker and, and Batman, even Batman isn't, that involved in in the narrative mm-hmm. his, his figure is very important but he doesn't have a lot of lines um, even by batman standards so you know lucius is there and lucius is important but really only as um sort of i think sort of a vehicle he's not developed that much as a character really it's just the connection between her and the wayne foundation really right um so i think p- the the lack of a significant supporting cast is part of the point and i also completely agree with steph i mean the 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 fact that that this is what almost a 200 page trade and that it's mostly Har- um harley's inner monologue and it's still to me sort of absolutely sort of you know really a, a commanding of your attention is amazing Agreed. One of Sejic's great things is just a really readable um, inner monologue. That's a big feature of his, uh, I want to say Sunstone, I, I can't remember, but that is a heavily inner monologue piece as well. And he really developed his skills in writing an engaging thing that feels like it gestures at realism. Because if anyone wrote down what we were actually thinking, it'd be very scattered and very difficult to follow. So he hints at that with sort of digressions and tangents, but it's still very focused on creating a poetic effect and giving us a sense of Harley's reactions to the people around her. And here's where I might differ a little bit. I think this actually does have a fairly strong supporting cast, but it's the villains. It's the patients that Harley's interviewing because they are her only real human contact outside of um, the, the security guard, Mr. Bronson. So, um, I, I think that that isolation is really effectively uh, built up. We feel isolated with Harleen in this story. I, I, I think that one of the things that Sijik does through that monologue is he brings us close to her feeling. He, he brings us close to her perspective really effectively in a way that I think is is not manipulative, but is very honest artistically. So I, I really like that. I also, I do want to mention, I just really like the way he draws uh, Lucius Fox. It's a very vigorous and different portrayal. I think we sort of see um, Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox ever since Batman Begins. But this is a very different uh, portrayal, and I, I would love to see, you know, miniseries based on many characters in this, from Chandra to Lucius to, you know, all these different uh, figures. And I think that, one of the things we're going to see is that he is going to develop some of these characters, particularly Poison Ivy. He wants to do at least a one-shot about her in preparation for Harleen Volume 2. Just a quick yeah. side note about the art and how it relates to the characters is is there are no ugly people in this book. <laughs> 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 Lucius is very Lucius, <laughs> if I could use that as an adjective. <laughs> He's very handsome. That's and, true. And it... it it definitely in the choice to make Joker, and I don't know if this is spoiling in your questions later, but the the choice to make Joker so attractive is probably a lot to do with since this is Harley narrating it. All this is through her point of view, and so that's how she sees him, whether or not he really is like that. Like he's the one drawing her into his world. I mean, if you and- think about the actors who have played Joker now, Jack Nicholson was a very different choice but Heath Ledger and um, Jared Leto however 
you may have thought of Jared Leto's behavior as a person, they're both extremely attractive actors. That's true. Um, so I think that a lot of work was done to make them unappealing in those movies. But if they'd gone for a different look, they could have played a Joker that was as, you know, just animal magnetism as this mm-hmm. Joker. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, I completely agree. And I think it's a great point that, you know, sometimes you forget because you get so wrapped up in um, Harley's narrative, you forget that it is through her eyes and that you are seeing the Joker the way she sees him, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, the choice to make him so charismatic and so attractive is so is is fascinating. And yeah, I mean, I think the well, I know we'll talk more about the art, but the the richness of the art in drawing the 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 real sort of attractive attractiveness of the characters is is quite amazing like i was like yeah there's you know i mean the relationship is it's sensual it's supposed to be and that really sort of came through in the art and i think that that's 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 hard to do so a question i have is as steph alluded to we all know how this story ends but in this first issue do you feel like harley has a way out or do you feel like it's determined that she is an alterably locked into her destiny as Harley Quinn once the Joker has seen her. I think at the end of this issue, I feel like that's a, that's a rough question because there is this determination, right? It's like if she gives up on Joker and on believing that he can change, she's giving up on basically her worldview. Like her foundation for life will be shattered if she can't save him. And that would that takes a lot for someone to give up. And so I feel like she's also, like we said, an isolated female in a man-eat-man world. <laughs> and so she has to be strong and determined and and stubborn to make it anywhere. And so I feel like, I don't know if it was destiny. I mean, obviously it is, right? Because it's all fiction. But, <laughs> in, but... I feel like it would have taken something really, really big, really early to deter her. But as we'll read, like she just gets drawn in deeper and deeper and deeper till she just almost morally can't give up. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think, um, again, it's a hard question to answer. Like Steph said, I agree with that because we know what happens. But I, I do think it's inevitable, right? I mean, I think that her fall is sort of... Um, inevitable once sort of joker gets his claws on her right i mean she's she's vulnerable in a lot of different ways although she's a super accomplished woman and i think it's it's really important to sort of remember that and keep that in mind and um you know she's quite amazing in many ways um which is partly what makes the gravity the 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 depth of the fall so much more fascinating right and that's a theme that joker plays on again and again in the comics and the films and things like that right i mean he likes bringing people from the highest all the way to the lowest right and so um i even given how impressive a person she is, I think that, you know, once she finds herself in that environment, she's just too vulnerable. Um, and she becomes, I don't want to say easy pickings for Joker, because I think it's actually more complex than that. But I think that, you know, um, you know, his ability to take her down is not, maybe not destined, but it's, 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 it's written. It's, it's likely to happen barring some sort of amazing device in the plot and the narrative. Yeah, I'm I'm really torn on this because Harley's story can either be I mean it has gone many ways. There's been the animated series which created her in which she's I think it's clear that both Bruce Tim and Paul Dini really like Harley Quinn, but I 
sometimes wonder if they respect her. Like they, they portray her as very sort of ditzy and, and really kind of clueless in many ways. And I think in mad love, there's even an implication that her affair with the professor is the reason she graduated. Whereas Sejic makes it very clear that she's got mm-hmm. the brains um, to graduate. She just happened to fall in love with the professor and that's why they had the affair. And, and I don't know. It's, Harley is such an interesting question of moral responsibility because she is seduced quite literally by the avatar of evil in Batman's world. But she's also become such a big character that she, she makes many of her own choices. And so many stories, including the recent birds of prey movie are all about her trying to break free from the Joker with varying degrees of success. And I will be very interested to see what happens with Harley in future volumes, uh, hoping that this gets one. I mean, he's certainly sold very well um, to see if he has her make choices because she, to me, it feels very determined. There's, there's such a, a web of forces against Harley. It doesn't seem like she really has a realistic way out that doesn't end with her in despair. Um, just with her life meaning nothing to her. Um, and I want to talk about the art, of course. I mean, we'll talk about the art all the way through, but one of the things I think is uh, Sejic has a very flexible style. He'll he'll go from something that seems very prosaic, almost like a Peanuts cartoon with slice of life, uh, sort of like a webcomic. And sometimes he goes for really lush, um, complex layouts and complex panel uh, arrangements on the screen or a big splash page where there's just so much detail and texture to the way he draws um what do you think the art means to you in in this chapter well two things my big takeaways one from this chapter and one just kind of throughout the whole thing is one like one thing i think dc especially dc movies really struggle with is telling an intriguing interesting backstory without bogging you down with it somehow i just actually just watched a, a little youtube video about that compared why guardians of the galaxy was great and uh suicide squad was less great even though they were basically the same movie and um i loved the scene where joker has got harley in his sights it's got it's just it's just him pointing a gun at her and in the background is her entire life story like in in one two-page thing of the comic book you get a real understanding of of where she's come from her insecurities the affair why everyone hates her how she got her job how smart she is you really get like just that whole vision in just two pages and there's there's very few words on it and it's all taught through you know through art and a few bubbles here and there but it's just it's just amazing to me like i i knew who she was and i cared about her in those two pages and i thought that was really great storytelling both through art and and writing and then the other thing that sort of is a theme and i think it's probably some kind of reflection of what's going on in harley said <laughs> throughout the whole thing is that that it builds up these big epic scenes like even right after where he he doesn't shoot her Batman starts fighting with Joker and and it's it's building he gets the henchmen he he throws Joker against the wall and it 
Harley sees it, and and then there's this big two-page spread of of Batman and, and Joker together, and then and and it's telling the story of what's going on, and then it's Harley in a panel that is about what one inch tall. <laughs> it's just this tiny little thing of her shrinking in the corner, going, and I just sat there paralyzed and watched, and and it's just interesting, like it. it gives you this surreal, almost dreamlike look of something. And then in the next page, with just a dot, 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 continuing the sentence, it reels you back into reality. And he does that a lot through this book. And I really, I don't know, it, 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 was, it was funny sometimes. And it really kind of just was jarring other times in a, in a good way, in, like a, in a way that's keeping your mind sharp and keeping you engaged with the story. It's like, I, I know where the story is going, and then bam, it pulls you in a different direction. And I just thought that was really cool that both the art again and the storytelling and even even the page count. Like, I don't think that would have had the same effect if that had been on the left page and then the right page. You had to turn the page from that big, glorious fight to see this tiny little shrinking, like, and I just watched. And it's just, it's, I really liked that. And it really drew me into the story a lot more. Yeah, I love the art. I, I loved it. So, I mean, a couple things. I mean, I think... There's there's almost like a horror comic feel to it, and I don't actually. I, I love. I used to love horror when I was a kid. I like it less as an adult, as a older older. I guess old guy now, but um, I, I love I love the, the horror feel to some of it, and I also love. I mean, my favorite um, art in the Batman universe and Batman in general is I really like the gothic themes. You know, I like sharp lines. I like the use of dark and light. Um, you know, a lot of shadow, a lot of sort of modernist. You know. Uh, um, sort of an ethos and i think you see that's not the only thing that he does but you see a lot of that in the way that the sort of characters and backgrounds are gone you know and then the use of the shadow that one panel in the first book where um dr kinzel is walking into arkham and i know it's a bit heavy-handed and dramatic but still you see the shadow cast of harley Qu- of, mm-hmm. ha- of harley you know with the hammer and the and the gun and the and the jester hat and it's 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 it was i was i was sort of arrested by it i mean again it's supposed to it's like a hammer blow literally right i mean that's the point so, so I thought that that was, I thought it was very effective. Um, and then the other thing I really like is this constant back and forth between the demonic Joker, almost of her dreams, which again feels very sort of horror comic-y. And then th- that contrast with, again, what we've seen is a sort of super attractive magnetic character that she interacts with uh, in Arkham itself, right? I mean, I love that characterization. And of course, that's what demons and devils are supposed to be, right? They're supposed to be very attractive until they sort of reveal their sort of inner nature, right? I mean, at least that's the sort of Western sort of trope, right? So I love that 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 sort of that showing of, of the demonicness of the Joker and contrasting that with the character that she sort of came to to love. Um, and I know that may seem a bit strange, but but I think I think that sort of contrast was really effective, and he kept doing it throughout all of the books. Uh, completely agree. I, I just, I mean, as you can, I think already tell, there's there's a lot of enthusiasm for this book and the storytelling and the quality for all three of us. Um, uh, last question before we move on to issue two: Does Harley's research on lack of empathy seem plausible? And I'm I'm particularly interested in. In Daniel's perspective, once Steph has had a chance, um, given your your background in law and uh, research, yeah, I, it definitely makes you chew on this for for a little bit. Um, and I think again, kind of like with Harley, what I was saying about Harley is it's a lot of it is is your worldview. Like, what do you think is the nature of man? And that's not a simple question. <laughs> and so, I think that 
it's not unreasonable for her to think that the people can be pulled back from a life of crime. And then through that whole thing, you know, there's a the juxtaposition of Joker in her even talking about it is is he thinks no, no, man is crazy from the get-go. And of course, those aren't the only two options, but I think that with given her her belief of how humans work, I think it's it's reasonable. But Again, that's not my worldview, so I don't necessarily agree with her fully. But I, I can see how, how the hope and how how she wants humans to be better than what they are is is commendable and it's good. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I believe or not, I actually know something about this um, a little bit, right? There's so there's there's this. I mean. You know, in, in some sense, there's actually some pretty good so um, like neuroscience and epidemiologic research that shows that living in sort of violence or traumatic or, or, or severely deprived conditions can have can have an impact on on brain, especially on kids, right? Because kids' mm-hmm. brains are are still developing, and neuroplasticity is a real thing. But I also think what what's really interesting is is you know there's almost an allusion to something else, like her specific theory. She wants to use neuroimaging, right, to actually show that living in that condition changes people's brains so that they lose their empathy. And there's sort of this old idea. It's really old. It's about 150 years old. This old idea in the West that that criminals' brains are different than the, the rest of us, those of us who aren't criminals, right? Um, and that we can actually point to specific structures in people's brains that will explain criminal behavior. Um, and without going too far down the rabbit hole, um, most of us who, who are familiar with these theories think that they're pretty problematic for a variety of reasons, right? They're, we don't, I don't think they're accurate. You know, I mean, um, there are certainly some people who've done some bad things, who've had some things in their brains, but there's lots of people who've done terrible things whose brains look just like anybody else's, basically, right? Um, and the idea that we are, our behavior can be reduced to neural structures of our brains, I think, is pretty problematic, actually, right? As it turns out, so um, it all has all sorts of problematic views for free for free will and agency and all sorts of. Right. So um, I think it's interesting. I don't know if Sejic knows about all of this, right? For those of you who are interested, the theory is called Lombrosian criminology, and it, it drives back to an Italian criminologist and anatomist named Cesare Lombroso in the early 20th century. He was he he was determined to prove that criminals' brains were different. But it keeps cropping up over and over again. We see it again with neuroimaging now. There's a big debate among people who study this stuff over whether or not it's really just sort of Lombrosian stuff sort of all over again. So I think it's interesting. I think there's a long history there and I got kind of excited in a very sort of nerdy way when I saw it. Um, um, I'm not a fan of it. Um, and I don't know if Sejic was uh, alluding to it or not, but I thought it was interesting that, that she had it in there. I, I really wonder, because I also um, wasn't quite convinced by Harley. I, I was convinced she believed it, but I wasn't convinced that it was, it was real, even in the world of the story. Um, do you think that her starting from this potentially deeply flawed foundation of a theory is sort of a really key step on the way to becoming Harley Quinn? Well, it's definitely the key to her obsession with helping Joker. I don't know if that's the only thing. I think her personality, like a lot of like a lot of what boosted her her indignation and her anger about how uh, Joker was treated was how Batman, you know, treated him and thought about him, even talked about him. So I I think maybe her stubbornness was maybe part of it, but I've totally lost track of what the original question was. (laughs) Oh, what she she would, would, yeah. Uh, So I think, 
I think everything that she is. I don't know if I would necessarily, it's just that belief, but, but that would definitely be a major, major player. Well, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things, Ian, to your question is if it's her fault, then it's also Lucius and Bruce's fault because they Mm -hmm. fund it. So that's interesting. There is a desire to believe that you can tell that a criminal is a criminal and that possibly you can fix them. And um, one of the things I do hope that CJ delves into in future ones is hopefully he'll give Harley some moral agency and we'll come to see that you have to want to change. You have to want to become better, to become better. You can't become better through a regimen of drugs and Mm -hmm. behavioral therapy and electroconvulsive therapy, which they explicitly mention, you have to want to, you have to have a desire and the same goes for an addiction. It goes for anything. And so I, one of the things I really like about this whole series is the moral quality of it. There's a real sense of good and evil. That's not, I, I would say it is black and white, but it's not easy. It's not simple to live the good life in this world. Um, so let's let's get a let's take a look at that difficulty in issue number two. Daniel, take us away. She was assigned to the clown himself. Doctor Quinzel, you know, I live for these moments with you. <laughs> what do you got? Got your kitty. So thoughtful. She thought she was curing him, but she was falling in love. There is something you could do for me, Doctor. Anything. I mean, yeah. Okay, book two. Harleen is continuing her interviews with Joker, trying to ascertain how and why he became the monster he is, but she feels he's feeding her lines to fit her hypothesis. Meanwhile, Gotham is turning into hell as Harvey Dent's face is destroyed by acid on live TV by a criminal he is prosecuting, and cops turned vigilantes kill the criminal, only to then, in turn, be apprehended by Batman. Joker's words in the interview that Gotham is filled with people barely containing suppressed rage start to haunt Harleen's dreams. She then goes to the Gotham Police Department for an appointment with Commissioner Gordon. As she wants to begin interviewing the police officers to test her theories, but Gordon warns her the whole department, including him, is on edge. As suspicion is focused like a laser on the police following the executioners announcing they were police officers. Harleen watches one of the cops Batman apprehended ranting behind glass and remarks to Gordon it's not the first time she's seen this. She tells Gordon she needs to ask Batman something, and he allows her to wait throughout the day before Batman arrives at the call of the bat signal. Harleen asks her question to bats, which is, does he think they can be helped? He responds that the reasons he doesn't kill the supervillains, the Jokers, and the Killer Crocs is because he doesn't want to give up on them or himself. He hopes there is hope for them. Noticeably, Harleen is already struggling to call the Joker Joker and not Mr. J. Back at Arkham, she takes another run at an interview with Joker. He immediately shortens her name to Quinn, which she allows. Joker then talks about Batman's role in Gotham, according to him. He also says that Batman will one day cross the line himself and become a monster too. He also lays some charm on Harleen, giving her vivid bad dreams. While behind her back, Joker has gotten access to her reports. Harleen is starting to disintegrate mentally as the effects of Joker's charms and his insidious mind games work their spell on her. 
Ivy notices that Harleen's hormones are elevated, curious to know if it was caused by her. She is sneaking into the maximum security ward at night to watch Joker sleep. And it's all downhill from there. Meanwhile, Harvey Dent awakens in a hospital and he realizes the extent of the damage to his face and quite possibly his mind. At a press conference, he goes crazy and then reveals to the world his face beneath the bandages and rants about the monsters that infest Gotham and how the executioners were the only correct response. Harley then goes to Joker with the one question she notices nobody has asked. Does he feel remorse for the lives he's taken? He responds, but the answer only drags her further into his web, switching the perspective of the doctor-patient relationship. She then releases Joker from his restraints and playing a game of her own, confesses she cares for him and allows Joker to call her Harley. So this version of the Joker is clearly very based on Alan Moore's take in The Killing Joke, most famous for the concept of one bad day. However, Joker doesn't just create one bad day for Harley. He creates five entire months. Um, why do you think the Joker wants to seduce Harley? Because he's bored? Because he's Joker? Because he thinks he can get her out? Why does Joker do anything? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my answers. My answer is I would have said the same thing Steph did. He's bored. Why not? Right? He's, <laughs> he's sitting in Arkham for now until he gets out. He's sitting there, right? That's part of it. I guess the other thing, though, is you have to go back to the first book, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm a hopeless romantic. I don't think so because that would be weird with Joker and Harley. But but, <laughs> but but I think – I mean, I think he sees something in her. Sedgwick makes that point, right, at, at her sort of most frightful moment. He probably could have pulled the trigger unless he was out of bullets, right? Um, you know, I think – I think it's not, and I think that's part of what I, I, I can't say for others, but people who like Harley, you know, I find the relationship that she has with Joker fascinating, you know, and vice versa. And I at least want to believe that, 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 that he is sort of drawn to her as well. I think that that's interesting. I mean, you, you know, you don't have to agree, although I think there's plenty of evidence for that in the stories and the narratives. Right. But I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to think that it, it, it makes, it, it fits the complexity of the character of Joker too. Um, that that once you know, once in a blue moon, he actually finds um, someone who he's sort of drawn to and attracted to, other than Batman, right? So, um, you know, I think maybe a combination of boredom and, and and genuine curiosity, and maybe some attraction. Yeah, um, I will. I'm going to take a slightly more um, maybe spiritual would be the way uh, you might describe the way I'm going to approach this. Um, I mentioned this in the the first section that I view the Joker as the avatar of evil. He, he's very much a demonic figure, and I would say that there's a passage in C.S. Lewis's *The Screw Tape Letters*, which is a, a book of fiction in which uh, an older devil in management um, writes to a younger devil who's trying to tempt someone, and he says that the stuff that makes a Hitler could also make a saint, that the potential for great good is also the potential for great evil. And I think that 
for me, that's why Joker pursues Harley, because he sees the potential for great good in her, and he wants to corrupt that because it's more attractive. And I think that's why the Joker is so obsessed with the Batman and with James Gordon. I mean, The Killing Joke is all about him trying to seduce James Gordon to becoming uh, a murdering madman uh, with a nihilistic worldview. And um, he does the same thing to Batman. And I think that's because both James Gordon and uh, the Batman are so determined to be good. And they they can be, if, if seduced, so effectively evil. I mean, we recently had Dark Knight's Metal, which showed literally hundreds of versions of Batman who had gone evil and um, had destroyed their entire worlds just because of the potential for evil that was contained within that potential for good. So I would say that. I do think there might be a slight flaw in my theory because we don't, we love Harley. I mean, at least I do when reading. I, I, I spend most of this book just pleading with her in my head to not do this because she's going to become a monster. I mean, we see flashes in this of her just brutally beating someone who really doesn't deserve it to death with a baseball bat as Harley Quinn in a flash forward. So even though I think a lot of what she does here is, is very, uh, I wouldn't say she's necessarily crossed that line. Clearly, she will cross that line. She will become a monster. But we don't really see her doing great good. She has great ambitions, but she's so isolated that she doesn't have those moments where she can make the world a better place. It's all potential. So um, that'd be my take on why Joker spends so much time on Harley. And, of course, I think the fact that he is bored is true. He wants something to do until he breaks out. But I think that he chooses Harley instead of, say, Chandra or the, the prison guard because she has a unique innocence or a unique quality of goodness that he wants to corrupt because it's that much more satisfying. And that, that's what makes him, to me, all the more evil and chilling. Um, we have here uh, a more thorough look at both Jim Gordon and um, Batman. Uh, how do you think uh, Sejic's characterization of these two mainstays of the Batman universe work for you? Well, again, this is all through Ivy, or not Ivy, good grief. It's all through Harley's eyes. And so they're not, they they give, or at least Gordon, helps her sort of either flesh out her philosophies or gives her something to think about. Like, they're not dummies or anything, but they're, I don't know what to call it, isolated, non-human, I don't know. Like, they're almost just like information banks. And I don't think that's a saying that Sajik's written them badly. I think it's it's sort of meant to be that way. They're a distant. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. They're kind of distant and they it's a good way for her to like talk things out and think about things. But in the end, like she's she's still staying the course of her philosophy and she's just gonna pick out the things that support basically saving Joker. So even when Batman basically says Joker is a hopeless case without saying Joker is a hopeless case. She just is so upset about it. Like she wants to have nothing to do with Batman or the things he has to say. So it's, they're very, she just doesn't want to hear what they have to say, but wants to hear what they have to say just in case it matches what she wants to hear. 
Uh, yeah, I like that. It's true of most of us, I guess, right? I mean, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I'd love a sandwich. Thank you. I was like, what, you know, what, what are you saying, Steph? Right? I mean, I think, uh, <laughs> I think, um, um, I think that, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I think the characterization of James Gordon is very James Gordon-y, right? I mean, mm-hmm. not that there's only one James Gordon I know, but, you know, the sort of, you know, the gruff sort of, you know, police commissioner, it seems, mm-hmm. it seems fairly sort of archetypal, you know, I mean, I would sort of say, we talk about art as house style, I'd say this is Gordon house style, kind of, <laughs> you know, um, and I, that's fine. I, I like, I like that character. So I, I don't have a problem with it at all. Um, I agree. It's not sort of, again, I think most of it is a backdrop for the story with any, and I agree with your point that the villains are sort of supporting characters as well. You know, I think the bat, the, 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 the sort of portrayal of Batman is really interesting. I mean, I think one of, you know, if you go back to the opening panel in book one, I think it's really interesting because it's actually demonic Batman. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's really interesting because, because it's hardly going back and telling the story, starting at how she's viewing Batman at that moment. Right. And then she goes back into the narrative. And as you go sort of, you, you go sort of back and you see it, right. Joker is the demon. And Batman is not right. And so, and I think that sort of that juxtaposition is kind of interesting. But I agree. You know, he he's pretty, you know, sort of stolid, um, sort of typical Batman. I, I don't think that drawing the full complexity of his character, at least in in the first and the second books, is really much of the point. I think he's, you know, he 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 serves as sort of an important source of that that answer to her question, which is important for her. But I agree um, with Steph that you know it's really only important to the extent that. Um, Batman would say what she wants to hear. And, and to the mm-hmm. extent that he doesn't, um, that really is going to actually push her further away and further down the road to Joker. I agree. I think that Batman in particular is kind of a static character. He He's most interesting because of the different perspectives we bring to it. We, of course, generally come to Batman and think he is a hero. He is a a shining beacon of hope, turning pain into um, salvation. Um, But Harley sees him as terrifying, as I think we're supposed to see Batman as somewhat terrifying for the normal citizens. And I think that's an unintended uh, side effect of him trying to scare criminals is he also can scare the very people he's trying to save, which, uh, as a side note, is one of the reasons I think Robin is such an important character because he's a great in the dark, leading people to safety. However, um, I really like this Jim Gordon because he's so uh, just decent at the core. Um, he is sort of house style. I mean, it's not anything really exciting, but seeing James Gordon written with just a an attention to the details of him caring about people and him being interesting is nice. I, I love Gordon ever since, you know, Batman year one, I've just loved Jim Gordon and the stories which highlight him are, are big favorites of mine. Although I'm, I'm deeply frustrated with the way DC decided to let um, the year of the villain infect him so he can be evil. Cause I just have no interest in an evil James Gordon. He's one of the reasons why the killing joke has any power that it does is because he resists that evil and then to just inject him with evil chemical from another universe and make him evil. That's it's cheap and I don't appreciate it. Um, something that I really noticed and I'm, I'm a fan of female characters. I think people know that my favorite character is Stephanie Brown. My second favorite character is Helena Bertinelli. Um, and I'm uh, a man and so I've always been fascinated by the question of do 
male writers writing female characters, do they feel real or do they not? I mean, a big example I always hold out is I don't feel that Silk Spectre in Watchmen feels like a realistic woman. Uh, I, I don't think that Alan Moore writes realistic women very well. I think that um, CJ, because he's worked so long I and mean, he works heavily with his wife, Linda, uh, in writing and illustrating, and he's written Sunstone for probably a good decade now. And those are both, that's a dual narrative of two female characters. I think that he's practiced, um, and it doesn't have some of those false notes that I get in other examples. Um, I, and I'm particularly, of course, interested in Steph's perspective. Does this ring true as a, a female narrator with all the little mundane details, or does it feel like, oh, yes, well, that's clearly written by a man? Well, and just to like point this out, like there isn't like a male and female perspective. There are three billion women in the world right now, maybe a little bit more. Death rate's a little higher in men. And <laughs> there's probably three billion types of women out there. So it is a little unfair to say this is a poorly written woman when there might be someone out there like that. <laughs> but all that being said, um, I do feel like I do relate to to some aspects of Harley Quinn, especially this a little bit more pre-crazy, still has it all together Harley and just her struggles. And I found myself reading this even thinking like, being drawn in myself like i had i had some like heart reactions like not like heart attacks but like emotional reactions while i was reading this and and i really appreciated those calls back to rea reality air quotes um comic <laughs> to remind us hey no jokers jokers a lying manipulative bleep bleep like don't don't fall in with harley's like trap or falling into the trap the harley's falling into and and i i appreciate that because i was like yeah no he's i hate this character i've said on the guest multiple times i hate joker <laughs> i can't stand him and so the 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 did a very good job in in walking us through how she thinks and i think they did a, he did a pretty good job like i never at one point was was thrown off by the writing thinking eh, women wouldn't think that i think he did a very clean job now that being said i don't know if it was maybe it's because i just am not a dude but i didn't think there was anything too intrinsically 100 percent female about everything but again you know women aren't 100 percent feminine all the time like we're especially i think more more intelligent women tend to be more analytical and less emotional which she again sort of not degrades that's a terrible way to say that but she does <laughs> into more emotional rather than intellectual because I at mean, the she end becomes she's an alcoholic and i would definitely say that's yeah, a degradation that's emotional that's true and at the end she's literally watching i mean not to spoil the third issue we're about to go over but she watches joker literally almost kill harvey dead to death with a brick and the thought hey this is a bad guy doesn't even cross her mind and so it's 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 interesting and it's almost not because she's a woman i mean maybe maybe the instinct to care for someone and wanting to save a woman is more on the female spectrum like it's the florence nightingale syndrome right not the i don't know famous doctor syndrome <laughs> but it, it's it's i i found it relatable and and almost too much and i think he did a very good job just sort of nutshell yeah. answer your question <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, and I, and I think that it's good that Steph 
answers more of this question because like Ian, I'm a man, so you know I'm I'm not probably a good judge of whether or not you know uh, Sedic drew you know drew as a woman. But I mean, I, I think a couple things that sort of you know j- jump out to, to my sort of jumped out to me is one, I really liked the complexity of her character. It was really yeah. fascinating. I was really drawn mm-hmm. in. You know, he wasn't. You know, there was nothing one dimensional about her. It wasn't simplistic. She was. She's very complex, very real. People are complicated and difficult and 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 hard to figure. And 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 she couldn't figure herself out at several mm-hmm. points. She 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 said at several points, like, "What am I doing?" You know. Um. And and I I found that sort of very sort of accurate. Maybe not sort of gendered feminine. But the one thing that did jump out to me was feminine was how much the, the sort of her trauma. Right in the sort of of shaming of her of her, her her sort of her sexual relationship with her professor, um, how much that that kept coming up. Right, it yeah. had so much to do with her social and emotional isolation at at work and and in general, and it, it really had an impact on her. And you know, I mean, I think that that. Um, not, not by the way, as a professor, let me just say that those kinds of things are completely unethical, right? So, <laughs> so let me just make sure everybody's clear on my position on that. But that's not what I'm talking about. That doesn't justify the fact that 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 a professor shouldn't should ought never do something like well, that. Well, and the fact is the the consequence is falling on Harley, not on the yeah, professor. Exactly. Where I think yeah. we, I mean, I was a professor in a previous life, and so both of us would say that if that happens. The professor should be the one who bears the consequence. Of course. Instead, it's this poor student who has yeah, I mean, and, so and much so less power. Yeah. She's shamed and traumatized for, you know, for being a sexual creature, which we know is something that, you know, women have to deal with a lot, to be honest with you, right? And I think that, you know, that's that's important. And it's important that I think he blows that up as such a significant part of her backstory and her origin. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's writing her well, but I think that's real. It's important to, to think about those kinds of things. Those, the, the way that, you know, patriarchy is operating um, in creating the villain of, of Harley Quinn. Yeah, 100%. And as I think I may have already revealed, I Harley never felt false to me. And I agree with Steph mm-hmm. that there are three billion different ways to be a woman. But I also think that there is generally a difference between uh, the way men and women think. And of course, there are exceptions to everything. But there are some examples like um, when you read something from Game of Thrones where George Martin is writing as a girl, and he just starts describing how she sees her own body and is very pornographic. And um, that to me never felt real. Like, I, I don't feel like most women think of their bodies in a pornographic way as to what will attract uh, a man. So that's something like a very specific example of when I think a, a man tends to fail writing a woman. And sure, maybe there are a couple of women who do feel like that, but that doesn't seem very representative. Um, I don't know. Again, again, I don't know how men feel because I'm not one and I haven't read that many books. But a lot of the stuff that he, he talks about, like when she's doing her makeup or no, I guess that's the next one. But when she's looking in the mirror, seeing like, what did Joker see? Like, and she has this, what was the really nasty thought? Oh, right. That, that she it really appealed to her that she was too beautiful to die and then that guilt that just she's like and then that guilt of even that having that thought consumed her like however long after and and just that kind of the weight of of feeling guilty about feeling a certain way is something i feel like I at least as a woman uh, can relate to. And, and like you said, the, the ostracization, and I don't think it's fair to say the professor had no consequences. We don't actually know. I don't think what happened with him, but it is unfair that even just the emotional fallout from that just followed her to her job and how she was never able to, to let that go. Whereas if it was a professor, you know, 
again, I can't really speak, but I feel like, you know, he got it on with a younger woman. I mean, he probably gets high fives, at least from some people, um, whereas she's being ostracized. And again, that's assuming that's <laughs> assuming about a situation that didn't happen in a fictional book. But come on. And yeah, it's just I, I did feel like he did a very good job. And it was as as a woman, I did find it relatable. And like I said, it was emotionally tracking with her as as this was clipping along. And something you said in your first response about uh, wanting to save someone uh, reminded mm-hmm. me of a, a less successful uh, version, at least for me, in Daredevil Season 2, um, the, the recent Netflix series. Daredevil has a, a long-standing love affair with the villain Elektra. And I was never able to buy because I never felt that Elektra successfully seduced Matt. Um, whereas I feel that Joker did successfully seduce Harley. So just an example of that going the other way. And I don't know if it's because it was a man, but I, I feel like if they'd had stronger writing for Electra, I could have bought it. I just never felt like they cared to give her motivations and really an appeal to Matt's character. Um, Some people think that when you give the skin tight suit, you don't need to write them that well. Yeah. I can understand that for having a one night stand. I can't understand that for like a oh, motivation yeah. Yeah. for a tragic romance. Um, uh, we have here the pairing of Harley's origin with Harvey Dent, Two-Face's origin. How do you feel like that works? And there's a lot of great art moments where you see Harvey with his face in shadow, and so it's clear that he's going to become Two-Face. But do you, why do you think Sejic chose Two-Face as uh, a third big character for this plot? Probably because of his involvement with the law and then his deterioration. I mean, that's just his origin story was he believed in the justice system and then degraded into not believing in the or becoming the justice system, however you want to look at it. And so I think that's a perfect character to, to reflect her study and her beliefs or to juxtapose it rather. Um, And he does like as Harvey in the first issue, you know, he basically argues with her and tells her, I respect you. I think you're great. You're wrong. You need to stop what you're doing. (laughs) Um, And in, and in this one actually, falling apart and her only able to really to see that through, through TV, which by the way, Gotham evening news news needs to just be rated M for mature on a standard basis. <laughs> Cause, Cause all the disclaimers were getting a little old. <laughs> it's like Gotham evening news only for mature viewers. But um, I think it was, it was really well done. And is he, his little, shoulder devil isn't in this issue is he oh, i guess he's a little bit but and i didn't really understand who that character was but but like the the guy that's like his agent or whatever um that eventually sort of becomes the internal voice of two-face i really liked that imagery and it just made it a little more sensical in the insanity of of two-face being two people and having a conversation with himself but anyway. yeah, yeah i mean that was the Probably my le- I, I really liked this, but but I mean I that was my least favorite part of it. Not because I thought it, it like didn't work. It it I think at times it felt a little bit forced. Um, you know, it's like Harley and and Joker's origin story, right? In a way, like I know Two Face is important in many ways in general, um, but I was kind of like, well, you know, why is it also Two Face's origin story? It could be. I mean, there's I guess there's a reason it. it it works. It's not like it's like jarring or discordant. Um, I just, I guess I just, I just didn't understand why it had to be there. I didn't, I, I don't quite 
understand why the origin of Harvey is so important to the origin of Harley. Um, I, I don't, I just, I mean, Sedgwick m- makes it as clear as he can, right? I mean, he even has Harley and uh, Dr. Kinzel meeting, right? Some early morning meeting where he asks her to stop her work, right? So they clearly have, he, he, he's trying to build the narrative. Um, I guess I just sort of found it more distracting than anything else. Like I just, I mean, it's fine. It's, it's not that it doesn't work. It's okay. Um, but, but I just think it, it, Two-Face is a major villain, you know, and I think his, 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 he carries a lot of weight, sometimes too much weight. Right. And I think that um, his appearance um, in some, at some places I thought was just a little bit distracting when I really thought what was so fascinating was the relationship between Harley and Joker. And I didn't think that, that I don't think there's really a sense in which Two-Face is, is necessary to that. I think that's a good point. Um, Though I, I like the thematic parallels between Joker, Harley, and Harvey. I think that they form, just as Harvey Dent, Jim Gordon, and Batman form a a triad of figures crusading for justice, um, Joker, Harley, and Harvey form a triad of characters in Mirror um, crusading for evil, for crusading for pain and death and vengeance. Um... So I guess my my take is that I think it's a good parallel for themes. It could do like if you didn't have that there though, I think some of her her thought journey would have to be replaced with something, but all in all I don't think you'd miss you wouldn't miss anything out of the main story at all by not having the the Harvey stuff. Overall. Yeah, I agree with that. Possibly. I think it's a very elegant plot solution, the way that the um, it works out in the third issue. But I'm sure you could work something else out. Um, but speaking of the, uh, the third issue, let's move on to Harley number three, Steph. Wait. We can't let everything we have be ruined by a silly misunderstanding. And just what is it that I'm not understanding? That we're two of a kind. That you'll always come back to me. Yeah, I guess I do, don't I? Dr. Harleen Quinzel is harboring vivid dreams of her patient, the Joker, as she begins to fall almost literally under his spell. Against her better judgment, she is covering the camera during her sessions with the Joker, which are now taking on a physical dimension as they openly flirt with each other during their sessions. Meanwhile, across town, Harvey Dent is trying to recuperate from his wounds, but he is haunted by hallucinations and his sanity is definitely in the balance. A group of disaffected police officers come to Harvey requesting he work with them. They are the executioners who murdered Maroney following his savage attack on Harvey. He flips his coin, his sanity slipping into the bizarre two-face routine and decides he's in. Harvey declares that they will stage a breakout at Blackgate Prison, forcing the politicians to act and implement the death penalty. In their sessions, with Harleen touching Joker's arm, he no longer wears his restraints in their sessions. He explains what it is like falling into the chemicals, explaining his body is numb, and to feel anything the touch has to be intense. Harleen thinks Joker is opening up to her, but she also is getting sexually attracted to him and is dreaming of him. Batman comes to interrogate Joker over a matter, and Harleen angrily sends him away. 
Caught up in her emotions, Harleen dresses for a date and then goes to the Joker's room and has impulsive sex with him. She dreams afterwards of saving the city of monsters with him. Meanwhile, Harvey Dent and the executioners liberate the denizens of Arkham, starting with Poison Ivy, then Joker. Harleen rushes into the building and is almost eaten by Killer Croc before Ivy saves her. Harleen then runs into Harvey Dent, now fully psychotic, and tries to talk to him out of shooting her. Harvey reveals a backstory with the Joker, revealing how he has lost faith in a system that is no longer able to kill Joker, only imprison him so he can escape and kill more victims. He wants the sword of justice to be swung. Harvey is determined to kill Harleen, even prepared to cheat his coin system, but then Joker appears and hits Harvey with a brick to the face, only stopping when Harley begs him to. Mr. Bronson arrives and is prepared to shoot Joker, confused as to what has gone on. Harley grabs Harvey's gun and in a moment of panic, shoots Mr. Bronson through the head. At that moment, Harleen basically loses her last grip on sanity and becomes Harley, laughing maniacally with the Joker about how funny and absurd it all is. They fall into each other's arms and she declares, if he can be the Joker, she can be his Harlequin. In the Batcave, Bruce reviews the files and finds that Joker has manipulated Harley, feeding back to her her own research in sound, into sound bites, and he feels responsible as he funded her work. Four years later, Harley, in her full costume, is lost in the Joker's world, having taken too many tumbles and a lot of laughing gas. But there's still one small last lucid piece of her that thinks the night must end. So... Let's start at the beginning. We have, near the beginning of this chapter, the the sex scenes, the sexual relationship between Harley and the Joker. And that's not always the case. There are some times where it's played off as almost an obsessive stalker's crush that Joker uh, grudgingly puts off with. That certainly is the way that the, the animated series seems to play it because they don't obviously want to go into a sexual relationship on a kid's cartoon. Um, but this has a very mutual sexual relationship and uh, as is fitting for Black Label, although I appreciate that it was kept relatively um, tasteful. It was never <laughs> the same level of gratuitous nudity that uh, Batman Damned delved into. Um <laughs> But it was still quite sensual. And my question in terms of plausibility is the Joker does not care about other people. The Joker is a sadistic, murdering, incredibly selfish, narcissistic sociopath. Does it make sense to you that the Joker could maintain a facade for five months? Now, obviously, he wasn't doing it the whole time, but for five months... Um, is the whole stretch that he had to pretend to be this person who fell in love with Harley and could make love to her in a way that uh, convinced her that he wasn't just being a selfish person, that he did love her. Um, Cause I, I think that this version of the Joker could, but I'm not sure that fits with most versions of the Joker. Uh, what is your take on that specifically sexual and emotional play acting that the Joker does for this long? Well, I mean, the thought of Joker even taking his shirt off makes me want to throw up a little bit. <laughs> so I don't know if I can answer the question. I just, I, I get the impression that Joker is both so intelligent and so insane that I, I think sex to him would just be paltry. Like, 
mundane and boring. Like, I just can't imagine him even really enjoying it. Like, I feel like most of his entertainment is cerebral and painful for other people. Sadistic, I guess. I just, I can't imagine he'd even want to. All other versions of him, I guess. This one's willing to do whatever, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. I guess maybe I'll sound a contrary note, right? Because, like I said, Please maybe I'm, I'm, the, I'm the hopeless romantic, right? <laughs> when it comes to Joker and Harley, which I, like I said, is kind of weird. But, but I mean, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I think Sedgwick does as good a job of making it believable as he can, right? Like Joker himself is oh, surprised. Yeah. You know, like, like, like he is a total narcissistic sociopath. He's the avatar of evil. I completely agree with what Ian says, but, but, but also, I mean, I think, um, though he's a symbol, I mean, I think the idea is he's still a human. I mean, like technically, literally in, in, in Batman <laughs> universe. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think the idea is humans are humans. Even, even the monsters among us doesn't mean that they can't, you know, um, it doesn't mean that, that Joker couldn't be attracted to someone. I mean, and I think the idea is at least as, as, as the sort of character of Harley has gotten more complicated since it was introduced in the animated series, right? The idea is that, you know, Harley does something to him that literally no one else does. Right. Um, and I, I sort of like that idea. I mean, you know, there are other versions of Harley as, as we've sort of mentioned, I, I sort of like this idea. I like that Sedgwick picks up on this one and sort of plays with it. You know, the idea that, you know, Harley sort of moves and sparks something in him that no one else does. And that also fits with her sort of insistence that she can save him, right? Mm -hmm. If she can see that, 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 you know, she does something to him and for him that, that literally no one else does. And, and, and Joker says that, right? She, she, she lets him out of the straitjacket and he's like, anyone else would be, what does he say? Punished for their stupidity, right? Um, by letting him out, but, but, but he's kind of taken with her. And I know taken can mean different things. I don't know if we can ascribe it to sort of love, uh, you know, but, but, you know, he, he's pulled to her, he's drawn to her. There's something in her. He doesn't kill her from the very beginning. And, and I think that, that, that Sedgwick does about as good a job of making that version of Joker credible as one could. Agreed. I, um, I have no, <laughs> let me be absolutely clear. I have absolutely no uh romantic uh engagement between the joker and anyone um, <laughs> the joker is a murderer and he is a sadist he loves causing pain and killing and um i and, and he's an abusive person to harley i mean even in this as romantic as possible version of the Joker, he is manipulating and gaslighting and um, abusing Harley. And I don't think that, um, I, I think that we can be emotionally engaged. I don't think it's wrong to be emotionally engaged in that, but I think that it would be unhealthy to, to hold that up as a, a romantic model. And I don't take Daniel for saying that at all. I think, I, I, when I hear you say that, I say you're 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 engaged. Sejic uh, has done such a good job of getting us into Harley's head that we feel those emotions with her. I, I um, and I'll spoil a little bit of my thoughts on where we might be going. Sejic has been very clear that he likes the relationship of Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. Just as I do not have any romantic feelings about uh, Joker and. Um, uh, Harley, because 
they're bad for each other. They're bad for everyone around them. They murder and and torture and uh, mock everyone. They don't have a concern for the well-being of the other person. They're they're selfish and cruel. I don't think that Ivy particularly cares about people. Now, she obviously cares about plants, and we can go into whether that's uh, important when we talk about our bonus content for this week. But I, I think that people who murder for fun, even if they seem to have a good cause behind it sometimes, are not good romantic partners. And um, I don't have romantic feelings about Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn either, because trading one murderer for another does not make it better in my heart. Um, so uh, I I do not buy it. I, I guess that's the only way. I, I love this story. I think it's really masterfully done, and I think CJH does a masterful job of showing why Harley falls in love. I don't buy that Joker, a Joker who's capable of the kind of sadism and, and cruelty and murder that we see him here. We're not even talking about the killing joke or... Uh, you know, no man's land. We see him slaughter people without a second thought here and enjoy their pain. I am. Yeah, not, I think. I, I, oh, sorry, Steph, go ahead. I, I'm just oh, no, not you. convinced that this Joker could convince someone who he hasn't manipulated that he loves them uh, just because he, he, he just loves hurting people too much. Uh, so that's my thought. Go ahead and respond. Yeah, no, no. I, I think I, I, I should stop saying romantic. I, I think, I think what I mean, you know, I find it more. I find if he's drawn to her, and I agree, I wouldn't call it love either. Right? I mean, it's not love. You know, he, 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 you're not. I mean, he's a sadist and a sociopath and a homicidal, you know, a mass murderer. Right? So, so I don't even know that he loves her. But I think it's interesting to toy with the idea that he's actually genuinely drawn to her. You know, that, 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 that th- there is, of course, some manipulation and, and they're not, you know, um, but that, but the idea that he's actually drawn to her makes their relationship to me much more interesting than it would be as if it's just a straight up story of cold blooded manipulation and he doesn't have any interest or care in her at all. He's just toying with her, which is possible, right? Um, to me, that's just less interesting, right? What's really interesting is if you consider the possibility that he's actually drawn to her, not, not love, I wouldn't put it that way, but that, that he finds himself pulled to her and it surprises even him. And to me, that's sort of interesting. And, and I sort of like that idea. I, I think that is true. I think CJ does a good job of showing that Joker himself, even though he is, I, I would still argue he's the avatar of evil in this one. He's an avatar of evil with an appreciation for things. Most of the time, I would agree with Steph that Joker is a very cold character. He's not sexual or sensual. He, he has these games he plays, and those games often involve uh, pleasure, but it's an intellectual pleasure. I think this Joker has pleasures of the flesh. He enjoys feelings of things, and I would say that includes sex. Um, and I think that's perhaps how it is. I just I would not say that this is consistent with other portrayals of the Joker. Um, yeah. But also, just to say that I mean, I hate to, you know, spoil the mood, <laughs> but there are a lot of abusive relationships out there in all kinds of forms. I myself have experienced one. It wasn't a romantic one at all, but it was a, it was a, it was a relationship where I realized afterwards, like how badly I had been affected by it. Cause it, it went so slowly. I hardly even noticed, whereas this is not quite like, obviously this is a bad guy and she should have known better, but um, there, it, 
you know, people stay with their abusers and the abusers stay with the people they're torturing. And I know sometimes that probably does involve something they may think is love. And so I'm, if Joker is that type of abuser, you know, it, he may, again, like, like Daniel was saying, there is something about her that's keeping him around. He's not just tossing her out with the trash or, or killing her as a part of some crazy joke of his. Like he, 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 there is something about her that he wants around it's still a horrible, abusive relationship, and it gets way too much attention. <laughs> I really appreciate you guys indulging me on this discussion. But uh, <laughs> let's move on a little bit to the question of Bronson. So Harley's first act that she feels she can't take back. She shoots Bronson through the head and kills him because he's threatening the Joker. Um, oftentimes... When you're telling the story of an antihero or a sympathetic villain, they'll make the the people that they hurt or kill even more unsympathetic. And this is one of the things I had against the the recent Birds of Prey movie. And um, they they constantly had Harley uh, just hurting and torturing and killing people, but they always made sure that those people were mean to Harley first. Um, and I just, I do not agree that being mean to someone is justification for killing them. And I think it's a, a common form of narrative manipulation that storytellers will use to get us to be on the side of the character who's objectively just a, a monster. Um, but here, I think that they, they make it clear that Bronson is a good man. He's a man who cares about Harley, he cares about his coworkers, um, and he doesn't deserve to die. How do you feel about Harley's killing of Bronson? Well, it was almost foreshadowed a little earlier was it when 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 he barges in on her and Joker during one of their you know, dates, whatever. Um, she gets so insanely mad at him, and that was definitely a reaction of like an addict, <laughs> because a security guard checking on one of the doctors who's in a room with a criminal who doesn't have and they don't have like the security cameras on, like that is a completely acceptable and appropriate responses for him to check on her and she gets insanely angry because obviously he's he's disturbing their romantic time or whatever um and so i don't know if necessarily if that was foreshadowing his death but you knew something more was going to happen and it, i i think absolutely agree with you he 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 was a great guy he's giving her advice throughout the whole thing he's you know they're never really friends but you understand why it's because he's lost so many friends to the Joker. He just doesn't want to have more attachments, but he's always looking out for her. He gets her coffee. Like he's a really, like never does he do anything that makes you even dislike him as a human. And then, and then she kills him. And it's like, you know, a hundred percent. No, Harley's in the wrong. This was completely unjustified. Like this is a security guard. He probably would have just, hurt the joker and and you know made him disarmed him basically i don't even know for sure he would have killed him but yeah harley is definitely in the wrong in this one yeah i mean i i think this one is is relatively simple and i don't mean yeah. i mean you know it's you know harley's fall has to be significant and complete right i mean there has to be something that 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 you know really sort of you know she's been descending 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 but there has to be something that pushes her into that depravity that we get a hint at, as you said, Ian, earlier, where they're with the flash forward where she beats someone to death with a baseball bat. What's its name? Slapstick? 
isn't that the bat's name, right? Um, it's actually is a little label on there if you go back and look at it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's what happens. I mean, I think Bronson is fundamentally a good and decent person, which is amazing to be an Arkham, right? Um, and to remain a, a good, a good and decent person. That's pretty remarkable in the Batman universe itself, right? And then you know, so so that 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 setup is there, I think, just to show. The, the depth to which she 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 mm. sinks and then she breaks, of course, both in doing it and then with the realization of what she's done. So I think it's pretty sort of a standard plot device and not in a bad way. I mean, it's effective. I, I agree. I don't think that we're meant at all to have that sort of justice. I think that um, we're supposed to see it as a tragedy, but I also think that we're supposed to see this as not a huge step. This isn't her beating the head of someone in repeatedly. This is one pull of a trigger finger and she go and Cedric gives the narration a lot of detail about how she doesn't know about trigger discipline or muzzle discipline. She doesn't know about guns. And so even though she is culpable, she didn't necessarily intend to kill him. And so there's that sense of, again, being pulled along by something bigger than you, something you don't fully understand until you're too late. You've already started drowning. You're being pulled in by the tide. Um, so I thought that was a very, a, a good, not not a good feeling, but a really well-crafted feeling of sickening despair because of this almost accident. But it's still your fault. There is no getting away from it. Um, how do you feel about the four years later epilogue? Um, the, the colors are really interesting. It's not like if you look at the covers where Harley is sort of maniacal in her glee uh, in her straight jacket, she's there's a vibrancy. But in this epilogue, the four years later, she's muted. She seems she's in a, a dream. She says she's, she's trying to wake up and there's a real sense of despair. How do you think that works? I don't know. I was actually a little, I don't know, confused. That's not quite the word. But it was a little strange at the end how how she was almost contradicting reality with what she was saying. It's almost like she was trying to distance herself from her actions. It's like, well, none of this is real. So if I've killed people, it's fine. In fact, there's, what is there? Oh, my screen is so horrible. But there's actually blood on her mallet, isn't there? At the very end, like she just is completely disconnected. And then what I really liked was all of the Harleys in the mirror, all the Harley Quinzels in the mirror, just trapped and trying to get out. And it just kind of reflecting what's really going inside of her and what she's choosing or maybe not choosing to be on the outside. Yeah, I mean, I am. Um... I thought it was okay. It had to be tied up. I think I'm now. I also I agree with Stephanie. I like the idea of you know the 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 Harleens trapped in those mirrors. I think that's actually pretty effective visual image. And there are there are some other points. I don't know if it's in which book. I can't remember where she refers to you know dark times as sort of a a present moment, right? That that I think. And sort of the haze of the depravity of the life that she leads now. I think she she catches glimpses of her former self. Like there is still some sense in which she's tortured, right? It's not um, it's not completely vanished, you know. And so since the story is a descent, is a story of her descent and how you know she does it. I like that that the 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 end sort of reminds us that there's still that sort of 
there's enough of a spark of decency or remembrance of who she was, even if she's a totally depraved murderer now, um, that it's enough to bother her from time to time, right? Mm -hmm. Which I sort of like. She's not as far gone in that way as Joker, right? And we see that, I think, in her character. So I like that. And that's a great segue, I think, into my next question, which is, do you think that Sejic is trying to seed the potential future redemption or perhaps an antihero um, path for Harley? Um, do you, is there a way that you think Harley can be redeemed from a, a, a head-smashing, baseball-bat-wielding drug addict? Well, she would definitely go to prison, uh, even if she gets reformed. Like, I don't... I think she was in control enough for enough of the time that the insanity plea wouldn't hold up for all of her crimes. <laughs> um, so in that sense, no, I don't think like as far as her freedom goes, no, but I feel like the, yeah, he is giving us hope that at least emotionally and psychologically, she maybe is, is savable. Um, and there definitely was enough set up with her. Those, even though there's just like what three scenes total, I think with her and Ivy, they're definitely setting up something with those two more probably than, than the redemption arc. I felt. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really think redemption is possible. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll claw back from being the, the, the more optimist, right? No, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't think redemption is possible. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine how she could come back from that. Although we know, I forget what was it somewhere earlier on in, in King's run. Right. Um, didn't, didn't Harley play, or no, it was Ivy who played an important role at one moment, right. With, with Selena. Um, was there Harley involved? No, I don't remember, but, but I, well, don't, I think I, I don't... you might be talking about heroes in crisis where Harley does try to help people. And there's actually been a real trend because Harley's so popular to try and make her more palatable. Um, and and see if she can come back, but I I don't know. Keep going with what. Yeah, you're no, thinking. I was just yeah, but 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 I mean, so I I think she's she's not she's I, I don't think she's as depraved a character as Joker is. But now we're just sort of splitting hairs at this point, right? I mean, you know, I mean, w w you know, which 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 homicidal murder, you know, which homicidal person is worse than the the next one? I mean, she's she's I I don't think she's redeemable all the way back. She's never going to be Harleen Quin Quinzel again, never. That's not going to happen, yes. right? I think she's right. capable of individual acts of betterness like Ivy is actually, right, as a character. And I think that's part of the reason their relationship is interesting. And I think that's probably what Sejic is hitting, is hinting at. But I don't think she can she can ever be redeemed to the extent she can, you know, ever become Dr. Kinzel again. I tend to agree. Um, one of the things, as I was saying earlier, that I really appreciate about this book is that it is it still maintains its grasp on right and wrong, even in the murkiness of drug addiction and alcoholism and insanity. Harley and we know what is right and wrong. And that's why Harley's killing of uh, Bronson is so shocking because she knows it's wrong. I, an easy way out would be for Harley and Ivy to get together romantically and face uh, things that are worse than she is. As I was saying, the, the narrative trick of having the people that you hurt be mean to you so you don't feel bad when you hurt them. But I think that that is lazy, is morally lazy, and it's narratively lazy. And I hope that, for my own sake, I, I hope that 
there's at least some hint at redemption that there's some idea that instead of just hurting people who are worse than you, there, there's a sense of trying to help people, trying to make the world a better place in a positive way. Because otherwise you're just basically deathstroke, a garbage man ca- taking out worse men for money. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we'll we'll really have to wait and see what he does with um, Poison Ivy, if he gets his either one-shot or second trilogy just about Poison Ivy. Um, but that that's my hope. My fear is that they'll just have them fight, you know, the big... Uh, polluting companies and they'll they'll fight them and they'll be okay because they're big and evil except for the fact that most of the people who work at those companies aren't in favor of pollution they're trying to feed their families so harley and ivy destroying those companies basically just starved hundreds of thousands of people so um i i, I hope that cj continues with his sense of right and wrong that he does so well here walking that knife's edge of sympathy versus uh, moral horror um last question uh as i've mentioned there are so many comics that this draws from from uh, the animated series and the killing joke um do you think that cjik has uh, something new he's trying to say through Harleen, or do you think he's acting as a masterful synthesizer, taking the best pieces and putting nuance and artistic uh, craft onto them uh, for this? He's story? definitely he's making her. I think he's making her a deeper character. And yes, there are lots of elements of of different people's Harley in this, but I think. That's a hard question because there's just so many reboots now and it's like what what is what? What is canon? What is it? But I think that anybody can make anything out of anything. Like like I was saying before, like Guardians of the Galaxy and Suicide Squad, basically the same movie, the same characters. One artistically masterpiece, the other eh. <laughs> and and so it's just a matter of of your storytelling. So I think that it being you know black label, I guess we never really found out it's canon, not canon doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm just rambling right now, but I just I think that he is just should be given credit for writing a wonderful story with this per, with this character's history, and then and then reimagining it for himself as something deep and interesting and philosophical and and something interesting that draws you in it's just a beautiful gem <laughs> um about about harley in a sea of harley not gems yeah i agree i mean i don't i don't i don't know i mean i guess partly i think if you do write the, a definitive version of a, of a sort of beloved character you you, you have done something new even if you haven't you know, sort of forged new, you know, forged ground in, in any kind of significant way. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think he's de- I think he's really sort of deepened the character in a critical way. I'm not sure. And I, and I think he's picked up on important things. Was Summer Gleason in the comics? I mean, like I said, I grew up with the animated series. So I knew that she was the main reporter for Gotham in the animated series. But I don't know if she was actually original in the comics. But I loved, I just loved like little things like that. I love that there was an homage to Summer Gleason, right, as a sort of person who for whom batman became sort of significant during the animated series so i just i sort of loved that um and i I just loved the the sort of depth and richness of the character and you know even if it wasn't 
you know, there wasn't sort of, you know, shocking new insights. You know, I think that what he was able to do in deepening the story that we we have, um, you know, is, is, is really, and I agree, stuff is really quite amazing. I... I lean towards the synthesis interpretation of this. I I look at something like um, Batman The Dark Knight Returns, and that is an alternate universe, although some people will argue that it was intended as the the future at that time, but that never really happens. But The Dark Knight Returns influenced Batman stories. It influences stories today. Tom King and... um, Scott Snyder, the most recent two long runs of Batman writers, have both said that The Dark Knight Returns is one of their favorite stories, and it's deeply influential on the way they write Batman. I I don't think that this Harleen is going to be the same kind of influential on Harley Quinn stories. And I wish that weren't the case, because I think this is one of the best versions. And there are some good ones. I think that the uh, the recent Harley Quinn animated show is a very good one. I think that um, Sam Humphreys is doing a very fun job on Harley Quinn uh, in the main title, even though that's sort of semi-continuity. But I think that, honestly, the thing that's most influential on Harley Quinn is the Jimmy uh, Palmiotti-Amanda Connor solo series, which is very anarchic. So this version is very moral. Um, It doesn't revel in Harley's uh, destruction and pain, Uh, whereas Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti fall all the way off the wagon. They don't really have a moral sense for Harley. She's just fun. She's the anarchic personification of fun. If that involves killing people who are mean to her, that's fine with that version of Harley. And that is the Harley that made it into the movies, and that's the Harley that more or less is people's version when I talk to them about it. I would love if this more tragic version of Harley became influential, but unfortunately I think that it's come a bit too late, whereas Batman The Dark Knight Returns was a part of a reinvigorating of comics in general. It was a huge moment this isn't really a huge moment it's just an incredibly well-told story with incredible art and i hope that it lasts as a good read i just fear that it's not going to change the face of harley the way that um amanda connor and jimmy pagliotti's series did uh i want to say six years ago and i mean yeah so for most people harley is a kooky zany amoral (laughs) character and that's definitely not this story and so if you're picking this up thinking i mean even by the art you can tell this is not going to be that kind of book but just in case you thought this is what you're going to get it really isn't it's kind of i don't want to say dark and gritty because we've i don't think that sells anymore i think that turns people off it's definitely dark and sensual though yeah yes definitely it's it's not your mama's harley quinn (laughs) um but it's a it's a good and that's that can be scary, like not scary, but that can be risky, like depending on who you are, the new and gritty and sexy new 52 was a lot of misses, especially in the bat universe. I think I've heard some 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 storylines did pretty good, but all in all, the bat universe kind of really suffered in that. And at least at the beginning. And and so you really do run the risk of of turning off a lot of readers when you do that. But I think this is a knock it out of the park success retelling, changing the atmosphere of, of the character that most people know, but still staying true to like her basics. 
Absolutely. So um, let's go ahead and give our ratings for Harleen. Um, uh, how many Batarangs out of five would you give this? Well, I've said that there has to be a Bat marriage for me to give it a five, but since Catwoman wasn't in this book at all, I think I would give this a five out of five. Like, the art is fabulous, the story is fabulous, the characters draw you in. This was all in all an enjoyable read, and I think people should read it even if you don't buy it. But you should buy it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe uh, it's over-enthusiastic for me, but I, I'd probably have to give it a, a five out of five. I, I mean, I, it's it's hard to fault it, to be honest with you, right? I mean, and I like the character of Harley Quinn, but I wouldn't say that I love her um, the way that I think a lot of other people do. I think she's interesting, and I, and, I, and I get it, and I like her. But I was completely taken by the story. I mean, I read it once, and then I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to read it again. <laughs> um, um, just because it's so interesting and I found the art mm-hmm. so amazing that one panel where you see her smile for the first time which we haven't talked about is is stunning absolutely stunning you know um, and it's supposed to be stunning to Joker and it's stunning for me as the reader as well so yeah I would give it a 5 I'm going to have to give it a 4 out of 5 not because <gasps> it's bad in any way but because of what I said I think it's a synthesis and I think it's come a bit too late to be defining to Harley in a way that I think I wish it was um, I think as we go on I, I mean we're already a few months after the final release of this and it's in a really beautiful hardcover with a, a cover that's clear so you lift up the cover and there's a different picture underneath um, it's, it's just a really great package I, I second what Steph said it's well worth buying well worth reading is just so engrossing and it rewards rereading with so many details the craft uh we've talked a little bit about how cj pays attention to the little details of like when uh the page turn happens so that details blow you away that they wouldn't if you saw it coming on the other side of the page it's just masterful control of the craft um i just think that it's held back a little bit by being in a glut of Harley stuff. And I think it's definitely the best of the Harley stuff, but unfortunately it's, it's a little drowned out. Um, and we do have a bonus content in uh, the new 52. There was a series called secret origins and they did uh, two or three origin stories of major characters that had new things going on because of the reboot. And so Stepan, uh, Stepan Sijic, uh, drew but did not write the harley quinn origin story it was written by christy marks who was writing birds of prey which featured harley uh sorry not harley quinn um poison ivy Poison ivy. i'm sorry it's my fault cages no it's, calling, it's my fault calling them the wrong name <laughs> um and so i'm gonna we're gonna read through the summary and then talk a little bit about that because we know that cjic uh really wants to write a um poison ivy origin to match with his harley as he takes them forward into an unknown future here we have the typical male aggressor fittingly imprisoned within the bonds of female domestic slavery green savior written by christy marks and drawn by stepan sejic Dr. Pamela Isley learns of a big company called Descanto moving in next to an unfortunate corn farmer planting their genetically modified crops. They sued the farmer for the wind blowing their seeds into their uh, the farmer's field, and Pamela promises to get justice, though she is no lawyer. 
Marching into Discanto Fields, she encounters a man spraying pesticide on poison ivy next to corn. He warns her that this is private property, and poison ivy um, says that the plants cannot hurt her and uses the ivy that he's trying to kill to kill him and drag him into the ground. She pays a visit directly to the head of Discanto, who agrees to meet with her as a prospective employee. Um, he notes that she was let go from her position at Wayne Enterprises because of her research into pheromones that she did unauthorized human trials with. Dr. Poison uh, Pamela Isley says that Bruce Wayne was too limited in his vision, and that's why he kicked her out. Um, she removes her blazer, lets her hair down, and then kisses Mr. Disconto, seducing him entirely to her um, will. Mr. Disconto begs to know more about her, and Poison Ivy obliges. Her father was a violent man who beat her mother, and her mother made excuses for him rather than stand up for herself. She used the garden in the backyard as an escape. Eventually, though, um, her father murdered her mother and buried her in the garden. Later, when she had perfected her pheromones and toxins, she visited him in prison and kissed him to death with a poison spread on her lips. At university, uh, as previously mentioned, she presented her pheromone research and was kicked out. But she used those pheromones to control people into letting her have power, influence, and graduation. She was at Wayne Enterprises, involved in an accident which caused her experimental serum to be splashed over her, giving her a connection to what she calls the green, which Swamp Thing readers will know is plant life on the planet Earth. And so... She forces Mr. Discanto to open her mouth, his mouth and dumps a packet of seeds down his throat. Um, the seeds she causes to grow and devour him from the inside. She walks away, declaring herself Poison Ivy, the guardian of the green. So, um, how does the writing that Christy Marks put here compare to the writing for Harleen, even though it's the same art? Um... I mean, it's definitely shorter. I mean, she's got to squish way more into a lot less space. Not more, but, you know, she has a lot of... There's only so much you can do with, with these many pages, especially when you're doing an origin story. Um, I mean, it's a fun little read. It's. I think I pick up a few more flaws as, as I read it a couple more times, but um, it was, I don't know. It's it's not as intense. It's not as intriguing. I find her less sympathetic overall. I mean, bioterrorism is not as <laughs> noble a goal as saving humanity. So it's hard to kind of relate to her, even though they have the whole abusive dad backstory, which is obviously meant to you know make you sympathize with her a little bit more. But I don't know. It's it's. It's definitely not as deep, and I just don't follow her journey or agree with her actions emotionally as much as I did with Harleen. Even though they were wrong, you can kind of track where she's going, whereas this is like, no, she's just angry. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's, what's that line from History of the World? You know, it's nice. It's not thrilling, but it's nice, right? I mean, <laughs> it's sort of like, it's okay, I guess. I mean, I, I think it's not, I, I think there have been there have been more complex descriptions of ivy recently because she was in um with selena and tom king's run right i'm not imagining that or maybe it was in detective 
But, um, you know, I think there's, you know, I think that's one side of Ivy. That's one sort of portrayal of her. You know, the, the, I like that, the bioterrorist, right? The eco-terrorist, right? <laughs> eco, yes, um, eco, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the eco-terrorist. And we know that's part of, of Ivy's character, but, but, mm-hmm. but I think there's, I think her character has been sort of, um, maybe like what Sedgwick is doing with Harley Red has been complexified in important ways over the last couple of years, right? Um, maybe long. And I think that's interesting. I like that. I like Ivy. She's interesting. Um, and you know, so I think this is standard, um, but I don't think it's, it's all that sort of deep or complex and she has a lot less space, of course, than Sedgwick does in Harleen. So, um, it's okay, I guess it's fine. I would actually argue that this is a fairly disappointing story to me after <laughs> the, the depth that Sedgwick gets into his, uh, Harleen and even his Ivy, even with just the three scenes that you have with Ivy, she's got more sympathy and depth than she does here. Uh, she's very impersonal, and one of the big writing complaints I have about the story is I understand that she's very limited in space, but Christy Marks relies heavily on stereotypes and really lazy rip-from-the-headline stuff. I mean, Descanto, that's clearly Monsanto. Like, she's not even creating interesting scenarios. She's just taking the worst possible uh, news stories and combining them into one uh, incident and then, you know, making that an excuse for Ivy to just really... Uh, kill a lot of people like the idea that um killing someone for trying to kill poison ivy on their own property is okay is the the worst kind of you know i mean i killed this person who was mean to me and it's okay because they were mean to me that that's lazy stereotypical writing and i don't think it serves ivy well if we're supposed to be sympathetic to her um Whereas I think Cedric does a much better job, although I'm, as I said, I'm very curious to see what he does, and I hope that he is able to keep that sense of right and wrong that he did such a good uh, job with, with Harleen. Um, I guess there's, I have a bunch of other questions, but they're really, we already answered them in our sort of um, discussion here. It's such a short piece. Uh, what what would we rate this out of five Batarangs? Oh, God. <laughs> three two and a half being art (laughs) i mean it's fine and you kind of i guess i didn't have such a problem with it as ian did because i never really liked ivy all that much i've always just kind of seen her as a non-empathetic eco-terrorist and so this was kind of par for the course it's like yes she this guy is just kind of generic bad guy because that's how she sees men (laughs) like I don't think if he'd been the most interesting in the world, she would have thought of him that way. And so I, I'm not as upset about that, but it is just kind of your run of the mill, nothing too exciting. Harley, Harley Quinn, poison Ivy story. Yeah. I'd probably give it um, two and a half. I mean, three, I guess maybe generous, if I'm being generous, but, but (laughs) Um, it's fine. Like it didn't bother me. I guess, I guess, you know, it, it just, it, it feels, although I agree with you, Ian, it feels sort of unfair to compare it to 200 pages, right. Where you can really do much, although you're right, you know, just those little scenes we do get with, with, with Ivy in Harleen are, are, I think probably more interesting than the sort of flat sort of, sort of villain archetype that we see in, in, uh, in secret origins. Yeah, I think I'd probably give it a two and a half as well. Um, the art is is magnificent, just as it was in Harleen, but the story, the, the writing doesn't hold up. I Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I should have, uh, I mean, we're already pushing two hours, but um, uh, it, 
I see Ivy at her most sympathetic in a story in Greg Rucka's Detective Comics right after No Man's Land, where Ivy was still holding on to a territory of the park that she protected from the villains. And she sheltered orphans uh, who, whose parents were killed in the earthquake and the, and the plague of Contagion. Um, and that is the most sympathetic I've ever seen Ivy, is where she is sympathetic to other humans. And um, I'm hoping that Cedric, for his his continuing stories in this universe, will draw from that and have her develop connections to more than just um, Harley. Because obviously she'll develop a connection to Harley. But I think that someone who just cares about one person and could kill or let the rest of the world's population die is still not very... It's not very admirable to me. So I'm hoping <laughs> that he draws from Rucka's characterization um, as well. All right. So that wraps up our comic discussion and analysis. Uh, we do have one piece of listener feedback. Uh, Steph? Sorry to interrupt, Master Booth. Ringing your phone now. This needs my attention. So Freaky Frappe says, If you were the Batman writer and you were tasked with coming up with a new villain, what would you create? What kind of costume? Hopefully better than the designer. Henchmen? Motivations? Love the podcast, and thank you. So this is a very interesting question. I mean, Batman has such a rich gallery of villains. I mean, my personal idea would be uh, someone who really is the flip side of Batman's family, where, uh, you know, he has all these Robins and Batgirls and other characters who he acts as a mentor to and who support him. Uh, the problem is that James Tynan already tr kind of did that with the character of Mother. Um, I don't think that Mother was successful in Batman and Robin Eternal in being a really memorable villain, but she does play with that exact thematic archetype. Um, but that's that's the direction I take. I, I I think I've gone into my theory of Batman's villains that they should always be some reflection of one of his strengths, uh, taken to a dark extreme. So uh, that would be the the strength of Batman's that I would want to explore in a villain. Well, I haven't sat down and thought about this, but I really like the idea of not. I don't know necessarily if they're all Batman based, but a lot of the villains are kind of Arkham. Arkham required uh, are, are like psychological issues, <laughs> and so just having more more villains that I think I don't know if themed is the right word, but that have have a mental issue and should probably go to a doctor. I am not sounding like a very good or original person, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm not. A, I'm not a creator. I don't have to do this. Is why I don't work for DC. But um, yeah, just having more. I guess interesting characters that have a good hook, even if they're just one dimensional, if they have a good hook and they're interesting, you know, I'll take whatever. I don't, can't really think anything off the top of my head though. You know, I'm always driven to, I mean, part of the reason I'm driven to Batman is I love, I love how much of his story is a, a fear narrative. I mean, you know, he, he, he not just faces his fears, he embodies, he becomes what he's most afraid of. And by donning the cape and cow. So I'm so fascinated by the idea of fear. And I know that's, that's characterized most notably in Scarecrow. Um, I don't think that they often do Scarecrow justice. I think he's more, much, he can be much more interesting, but that's what I would love to see. And they do, I think they did a little bit of that with uh, first victim. Wasn't one of them sort of a Scarecrow-y kind of person, right? Didn't uh, yeah. there was yeah, in the victim syndicate or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, 
one of them was, but but something like that, something that really plays on that idea of fear um, um, in a different way. So it doesn't, not in the same ways that Scarecrow usually does, but that there's something else about it. Because um, I think that there's sort of a lot to explore there. I think it's fascinating. They do a little bit of that maybe with, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the mood guy. I'm forgetting his name. Psycho Pirate. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, Psycho Pirate, a little bit of that, you know? Um, but something like that, something playing off of fear. I've, it's, it's, it's just, that, and that's personal. I just find it so fascinating. Yeah, well, hope that uh, gives you at least some answer to your question, Freaky Frappe. Um, thanks for chiming in with your email. Um, if you want to become a commenter and be featured on our podcast, or if you want to become a reviewer, please feel free to join our Discord. We're always looking for people to help us uh, review comics or write original content. Um, we always converse with you there. Um, we also have our Patreon on Batman, or you can uh, the BatmanUniverse.net. You can either give us a one-time gift through PayPal, or you can support by Patreon, or you can just listen to us um, for free. Our supporters are Gerald Green, Donald Townsend, Tim Garassi, Captain America, Karinas, Mary Garrett, Real No Deuces, Stanton's Grave, Brendan Roberts, Donovan Morgan Grant, Ed Grouse, Rob O., Ian Miller, Arturo Juarez, Stephanie Mounts, Joshua Lappin-Bertoni, Hannah Garr, and Johnny McCloskey. Thank you all for supporting. Next time, we'll be reviewing another retro comic. Um, this one will be uh, Batman Lil Gotham and Batman Tales Once Upon a Crime, both by Dustin Nguyen and Derek Friedolfs. I want to thank our special guest host, Daniel. And until then, I've been Ian. This is Steph. And this is Daniel. And thank you for listening to the Batman Universe comic podcast.